dreads, unfortunately. Chance, talk about the porn one. No. <laughs> well, this is this is more family friendly. This is neutral. All right. Not hot button issues. TVG or TVPG? With PG thirteen plus oh, plus okay. the word fuck. Okay, cool. So eighty. The recording that way. Um, I think Ryan thinks he's getting involved in this, but uh, we can we can bring him in when he shows up. I guess. Fuck it. <laughs> he's like what twenty to thirty. Like twenty or thirty minutes. So what about we what about we talk about the word Ziza Jesus? Did you make that one up? Yes, I did. Proud of you. Thanks. Ziza Jesus. Ziza <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Hey, yep. James, did you write a thread recently? Oh yeah, I wrote a couple, but yeah. they're There's not very accessible. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about complexity case. theory. Complexity theory. Oh, no. and what did you what did you say, Jason? There's one that involved the word jizz. Jizz. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that right. was a uh, a Bronze Age pervert uh, kind of just modeling his his style of language. Interesting. Uh, he wrote an amazing like his book uh, called Bronze Age Mindset is I, it's like super kind of um, it's kind of like really right wing and a little bit fascist. Um, and it's like kind of, uh, it's just the most strange mix of themes and tones that you've ever seen in a book. But it's like, he's, he's coming out of Nietzsche and um, that feminist who, uh, I think her name is like Camille Paglia or something like Great. that. I'm, I'm and, uh, and he just writes this really psychedelic, um, uh, it, it's like a manifesto of a kind. Um, and it's kind of, it's like super, it's promoting masculinity, but it's also a little bit homoerotic, but like, like, I don't know. It's, it's, just Greek, real, it's what? Basically the ancient Greeks. Yeah. Yeah. He's, um, he's trying to in, invoke a return to the bronze age. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what it is, but it's like, it's the trippiest thing I've ever read in my life. And come for the fascism, stay for the homoeroticism. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Stefan? Where's Stefan? We we need him in his fast wave. Um, all right. So let's see. We could talk if we want to. If we want to obliquely hit on numerology, we could talk about. Um, I wrote a thread about uh, pareidolia, which is basically like seeing patterns where there aren't patterns. And uh, what was the other the other word? We could talk about that. We could talk about. Uh, I I think Bronze Age pervert might be a bit out of what we're looking to talk about and I'm not familiar with him at all. So I could mm. not help with that if we did. Yeah. Um, He's good though. You should, you should read it. I'll have to, I'll have to invest. James, your other thread about complexity stuff, I think would, I mean, cause thud self self-named Mr. Thud now also is into complexity stuff. Is he? Cause he didn't really write about complexity. He wrote about response to complexity. Yeah, um, he he likes to, he likes to talk about complexity. Okay, uh, but I don't know enough about it, you know, to know yeah. if, he was, if, if he knows what he's saying or or not. Cool well, story. Well, what's that, Chance? What? Let's get this show on the road. 
Yeah, I'm, try, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to find something in my uh, in my notifications to just jump on. Um, Let's talk about inflation versus piracy. I don't even know where to start with that. Um, They're both. Wait a minute. Um, here we go, James. What uh, the the idea of inflation that you talked about? Uh, oh yeah, sure. Can we start with that then? Yeah, we can. Uh, you guys will you will be able to pick this up from. Uh, I'm going to ask that when we start, you just take that away for, you know, give us a brief introduction into the idea and we'll be able to roll from there. Mm -hmm. So let's try and um, if at any point in the conversation, uh, we can try and hit like three topics in the first half hour. So if you have a good topic that we can segue to, put it in the chat in the group and then uh, we'll try and do that every 10 minutes. And then the last part, we'll pick one thing and go really deep into that. Okay, so when we start, um, I'll go ahead and introduce, well, Victor, if you want to introduce us and then have everyone call themselves out, like we did last time. Uh, yeah. Okay. Is it episode three? Yeah. Right? Correct? Okay. What's up? Uh, let me do the James thing. What's up, everyone? Victor here with episode three of the Ionosphere. That's right. That's it. That's as far as my impression goes. What's up, everyone? Subtle Bodie, Victor Valentine. We're here with Mr. Chance Lunsford, if you would. I would. If you would introduce yourself for the audience. <laughs> I'm Chance Lunsford, Logo Centrifuge, Logo Centrifugal. Been spinning out the truth since before the war, and my hair is showing the strain. All right, excellent. Ian, how about yourself, brother? <laughs> Can anyone else hear him? Robot cannot speak. You have, is there a gain setting on your microphone by any chance? We can start over uh, whenever you get that sorted out. But there, if you go into audio settings, there should be a way to turn up the uh, receiving volume of your microphone. Man, everyone is coming through so choppy on my, on my side. Yeah, same. Yeah, future reference, we're going to go ahead and do um, like an audio, a sound check at the beginning of things so that we can avoid this. Oh, Jesus, we lost someone. Who do we lose? <coughs> oh, Victor. Oh, yep. no, he's still here. No, Victor's here. Uh, Garrett, you're coming in really good. That microphone sounds hey, like man. it did the trick. I uh, I have the information for this. If anyone wants to order one, it's like a, a buck twenty right now. Very very cheap. What a buck? What what? Seriously? Hundred and twenty. Oh. <laughs> He's speaking cool dude language. Ah. Uh, Cost hundred and twenty schmeckles. Hundred twenty Deutschmarks. <laughs> Another day oh, in the back. I, I, yeah. Can we hear you now? now is that better a little bit yep. yeah 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 marginally Damn. <laughs> okay cool we're gonna we're gonna take it from the top if you want to redo that james impression that was kick-ass <laughs> all right cool this time i'll commit like outright um instead of panicking so do the head tilt you gotta <clears throat> gotta gotta is it left or right i don't know which side it's... he tilts to the left yeah, I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell to the. I'm gonna tell. Hello, hello, everybody. It's James P. Dowling. 
What's up, everyone? Victor Valentine here with the Ionosphere Episode 3. That's right, coming at you live from Southern California, up in the middle of nowhere. I'm tired as hell. I don't sleep. James P. Dowling, Jordan Peterson, welcome. <laughs> no fat. No fat. Invicta cost. Take control of your life. That's all I got. All right. What's up, everyone? Victor Valentine here, Subtle Boating, uh, with episode three of the Ionosphere. I'm here with the illustrious Mr. Chance Lunsford. Chance Lunsford come to speak and play and sneak away to other days and play the poet. <laughs> Sometimes show it. Oftentimes, I don't even know it. That's right, I went there. Beautiful. And we are also joined by Mr. Ian. How are you doing, sir? Doing pretty good. Um, I'm not really as poetic as uh, Chance or Victor over here, but uh, here to have some uh, conversations. Perfect. And how are you doing, Mr. Jason Snyder? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Metamodern generalist, meditation enthusiast, imminence and emptiness, catharsis and joy. Excellent. And we're joined by Miss Lovely Emily Painter. How are you doing? Awesome. Thank you. Um, yep. Emily Painter, Code of Painter on Twitter. Um, here to have a time. <laughs> Perfect. And we are also joined by Mr. James Connors. How are you doing today, to, today doing, tonight? Doing well, Victor. Uh, it's good to be here. This is my first time. Uh, I, to introduce myself very briefly, uh, I'm a psychology student. I'm hoping to get into grad school soon uh, and uh, have an introductory interest in complexity science. So that's me. Perfect. And finally, we are headed by the ionosphere creator himself, Mr. Garrett Daly. What's up, everyone? Uh, I hope you're enjoying the dulcet tones of my voice with this nice new microphone. If you don't know me by now, then you haven't watched the other episodes and you shouldn't be here. Go home. But if not, stick around. Let's get started. That was Perfect. rude. Tough. Yeah. We can roll with it. <coughs> Real quick before we start, I'm going to plug that ebook that I'm writing right now. It's 60, Victor's Quick 62 Toolkit for Freelancers. I'm not done with it yet. It will probably be done by the time this is posted. I'm guessing by the 17th. So happy birthday to me also. But yeah. Go order that. Here we go. What's the first topic on discussion? Do you want to start with uh, what James has brought to us? Yeah, we can do that. So, uh, so one of the, I think, most crucial takeaways from Jungian psychology right now uh, is the idea of inflation. Um, and basically, the uh, inflation is... Um, uh, it's, it's something that's become a huge threat, uh, according to this perspective. It's become a huge threat to people um, after, quote unquote, the death of God, after religion has kind of fallen apart, um, and we're kind of left to our own devices to kind of put together meaning in the world. So the Jungians, they would say, um, you know, you had Nietzsche, um, and Nietzsche was was going around talking to him, he was proclaiming uh, the Ubermensch and he was trying to model that. Uh, Jungians would say that he was actually inflated and he was pathological and um, 
he was grandiose and he was attributing divine energy onto himself and he was he was inviting all these projections um so the idea of uh of inflation i think is pretty relevant um to anyone who kind of has these kind of interests in the topics that we're all interested in here um because it's it's a kind of a warning to keep us from going overboard in any way um to kind of stay grounded um i think I see a lot of value in Jason's approach, um, which is to, to stay embodied um, to, uh, with all the meditation and all that. Um, I think that's a really, um, that's a humanizing thing. And I think it's very valuable here. Um, so um, yeah, that's, that's basically inflation. I'll just give you an example. Um, Kanye West is a, is a good model. Um, he's, he has his good days and his bad days, but, when he's inflated, um, it's, you know, he's, he's talking about himself like he's a god. Um, he's going crazy. He's, he's alienating people. Um, that's, that's kind of what it looks like. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, if anybody has any questions, be happy to, to get into it more. So are you talking about inflation in the sense of like inflating your ego? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they would talk about it like it's, um, it's kind of like this eruption. Um, they have, you know, Jungians talk about the ego and the self and the self is like the totality of the consciousness. And they would say that the self kind of erupts into the ego and it causes catastrophic damage. Um, one thing they talk a lot about is like fragmentation anxiety. If you have this image of yourself and it's not, it's not entirely mapping in the right way and you're not you're not um, getting the feedback that you that you're looking for um, then you kind of have this threat of ego disintegration um, I'm, I'm using a lot of Jungian terminology here so it may not be um, accessible uh, but but yeah that's like that's the, the picture of it well before we get into that let's let's see if we can try and ground that in some terminology that everyone can kind of agree on, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I try to do a lot with my writing is take uh, take a bunch of disparate concepts and create kind of a unified terminology. When when you're using self erupting into the ego, how are you? Uh, can you define self for me? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it gets. It gets even more complicated um, because the Jungians have a metaphysical view of the self that extends beyond the present and it extends into the past and the future. Um, and it's the totality of consciousness and it's, it includes the unconscious, um, which I'm not really sure how to ground that um, off the top of my head. I'm not really sure how to, if, yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of struggling here. Um, is there another direction we can go? Well, I think, um, I think we could, uh, we could take that. So let's say when, when you're saying the self is erupting into the ego, mm -hmm. is it, is it the idea that, okay, I have this very nebulous concept of self. Like I have a very, uh, Oh, look, we've been, uh, joined I by Ryan. New players into the game. Uh, he's here. 
We are uh, we are currently recording. So we're gonna keep rolling with that. So, um, so you, you're saying you have have the uh, the self erupting into the the ego, right? Mm-hmm. Is that like the the understanding that I have this uh, very broad idea of what constitutes me, right? And I get associated with this feeling of like a greatness of my identity, and I'm bringing that into my person. Is that what I'm taking yeah. from this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the greatness of your identity, the um, basically any kind of mytho- mythic mythification of your own self, your own identity, which in some senses is very valuable and even necessary um, in the modern age, I would say. Uh, but it also has this threat of Again, it's, it's an eruption, it's a grandiosity, it's a kind of narcissism that threatens to alienate you from the reality of your circumstances. Um, James, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you think that this is becoming more of a problem with this hyperinformationalism? Yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah, I would say so. So so one thing I'll point out here is the fact that tribalism is actually a counter to inflation because you don't have to inflate yourself if you can inflate your tribe. Um, the best book I've read about this is it's called Facing, Facing the Dragon. It's by Robert Moore. Um, he's the same guy who wrote that book, uh, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, which is a pretty famous Jungian um, approach. But... Uh, in his book, Facing the Dragon, he talks about how in, uh, traditionally <clears throat> we've had our tribes and we project our, all of our um, greatness onto our tribes, onto our, it could be your nation, it could be your, just your society. Um, and basically you say, yeah, these people are divine, they're deified in some way. Everybody else is less than my tribe. Um, and what that does is it allows you to kind of project this really, really intense kind of deification onto something else that's related to you, but it's not you. So you don't have to take on all of the, uh, the very, very intense kind of outlook that Nietzsche had, which is like, I'm a Superman, I'm a superhero. Kanye West, again, I'm a superhero. Um, because when you do, it's not always going to map up. It's not going to, you're going to become detached and you're going to become alienated from your circumstances. So what we're, what we're faced with in the modern era is every, everything's kind of collapsing. The religious structure collapsed. The, even tribal structures are collapsing in a way. I mean, we do have politics we have left and right politics but even that in a way isn't really holding up and i think it's becoming more and more confused and disjointed um but ultimately uh this is i mean this is kind of a uh, a very abstract problem and um yeah it's uh, it's good to stay grounded so i think this whole concept makes sense when you look through anthropology like anthropological examples of successful tribes of humans who were successful because they were able to displace this mm-hmm. 
internal ego versus like something along the lines of an empire with a dictator who, you know, trampled an entire land and held it down for a while, but it never lasted with the same longevity as some of these tribes, which are still, you know, uncontacted today and are still living the same lives that they lived, you know, maybe up to 10,000 years ago. We don't, we don't even know 5,000 years ago could be. Um, and to, to bring that into the modern age, I agree with you that there's sort of a segmentation that's happening or an individualism that's happening where everyone's becoming shielded into their own bubble of this online scope, whether it be tailored search results for, you know, what you look up on Google, advertisement placements, um, different niches that you fall into on social media channels, whether you're a feminist or whether you're a vegan or whether you're, you know, spiritual or an atheist or whatever it may be, you fall into these little categories and then it continues though, because with that segmentation and with that separation come new communities and come new ideas and come new chances for growth and stuff. So while I do agree with like up until now, it, it is becoming very fragmented with political spheres and with other social tensions and stuff. It's also, it's also serving to, to a great light for those problems themselves because now we can share information between each other faster than it's gone through in the past through other channels and stuff. So, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of levels to that, to that yeah. thought, but um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so, yeah. We just had about three people. Okay, pick someone. Emily, go ahead. Okay. Um, I would say that there's a kind of fine line between forming tribal groups and forming communities. And I think the latter is, kind of always a positive thing but when you have different tribes I don't know how I feel about this kind of displacement of the ego and whether that's a good thing because I think tribes and forming those in forming a tribe you form an out group and I think that that is not evolutionary evolutionarily necessary anymore whilst it would have like helped us to survive in the past we're all on a singular planet we're all sharing the same resources we all rely on each other in this really complex and what comes with complexity is risk so this complex and riskful way so when we are forming these different tribes and forming out groups we kind of we risk the stability of the whole and i do think that these technical technological platforms um, and the ways that they are designed in order to, you know, promote different conflicts because when there is a conflict, you want to get involved and you want to stay on these different platforms. Um, and the way that that kind of polarizes people is really damaging. And I think in that sense, that tribalism is still an inflation of the ego. Jason, you had a thought? Yeah, so Emily, I, I, I agree with you with the problems of kind of this extreme polarization of tribalism. And there's a really interesting article that I'll send to you guys later. Um, it's called like, uh, I was just looking for it. It was called Culture War 1.0 is over, Culture, Culture War 2.0 is here, Nomadic Tribes and Culture War 2.0. And basically they make this whole spreadsheet, this huge spreadsheet of like all of the different kind of online tribes that they could identify and then they go through like their mythos, their kind of core belief system, you know, their core values, their core kind of, you know, like there's like 10 or 15 different columns of like, you know, a matrix of, of what, um, what is meaningful to them. And I think people have actually started like mapping it 
in these like physical diagrams. Um, but I think, so I don't think tribalism is bad, but I think we, we have to add this notion of meta-tribalism. It basically means that each person is part of multiple tribes, right? And if you look at it on like a network graph, you know, you have like, you have these kind of like uh, bunches of, you know, nodes uh, with connections and they're, they're kind of like, there's these clusters, but the clusters are also connected all across each other. And so I think that the, the tribal aspect, in, I mean, what you were talking about, James, of like being able to kind of, um, I don't know if subsume or, or to kind of sacrifice part of your ego for the good of the whole, have that element. But at the same time, you know, if, if I'm part of, you know, the ionosphere, you know, I might be part of two or three other groups as well that might have different types of people in them. And one, it forces me to be cognitively flexible to, you know, to check my assumptions, to observe my reactivity. But in general, on a societal level, it forces this more kind of fluid, dynamic information going, going across the different tribes. Mm -hmm. um, and I see that as the model forward. So I know that Chance has something to say, and then Garrett has a response as well, and then we will continue. We'll, we'll ping pong it back and forth, and we'll move on from there. So, Chance, take it away. I'm forced to question what percentage of the message of which we raise alarm bells is just the way we harm ourselves. And also further, another question, one I don't think we have the answer, but contained within is such a lesson that perhaps it's time we have some banter. The conditions under which you say you want the peace for makes me wonder what's the fleece for? For should the time of cataclysm arise, your peace would be a prison. Competition, stop and listen. Competition is the path to improvement. Other than that, why else would it have been a constant? Where's your vowels? Where's your consonants? That was, yes, that was poetic. Thank you, Dr. Seuss Lunsford. Okay, Garrett. So, um, I think I think I have an angle which we can tie together both the idea of inflation and then this kind of idea of tribalism, right? Um, I tend towards the belief that society mirrors uh, as a whole the process of individual development. Um, historically, we have been smaller hunter-gatherer bands of tribes, right? And these are generally, generally limited to Dunbar's number, which is usually considered to be around 150. Now, if you're not familiar, Dunbar's number is the number of people you can have meaningful relationships with in your life. Um, if you had a hunter-gatherer band of uh, tribesmen, right, and that number went over 150, uh, it would usually split into two separate tribes. So there is still this biological constant as far as what we can like mentally deal with. Uh, if you get over this, you can't. It's you can't maintain relationships, right? You start to have uh, multi-group fighting. You get clicks. You get that kind of thing. So. As far as inflation is concerned, I think we've gone from this original tribal stage and that kind of progressed from 
tribes to city states to national identity right but now we're we've kind of reached the stage of the birth of an individual identity right the issue that i see with that is that we had this kind of naive individualism which is like i'm the best fuck everyone else right like a very limited perspective on the individual identity like a solipsistic kind of i'm the only thing that's real so you get this individualism where you can't you can't understand that your actions impact others or that you're part of a larger whole. And I'm, I'm like the world's most diehard individualist, but that is a bad individualism, right? So in, in that sense, there is a tribalism that we could reach that that would kind of limit the negative effects of, but I think rather than returning to the old system, what we need is a kind of enlightened individualism, right? And an enlightened self-interest where we understand that, uh, our identity as individuals is not something that is just limited to us. It's, I am an individual, but I'm also a part of a group or multiple groups, right? And my interests rely on the success and well-being of these people in these multiple groups, right? So it, it's kind of like diverting the inflation to understand that your individual self is part of a larger uh, thing that other people share. And that's kind of what I call the true self as in consciousness, which I, I, I'm not sure that I can uh, analogize that directly to the Jungian term, but it seems kind of like a similar concept. So I, I see it as if we identify with the true self, which is the consciousness that is the same in every person in this conversation and every person in the world, they all possess this ability to, this awareness that's innate to humans. If we identify with that, then we can have an individualism where we relate to others through that, right? Because we can only understand others to the depth and in the manner that we understand ourselves. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And I am to take the competition thing and tie it in with what we're, with what was just said, I think that it's up to the individual to compete with themselves and how many different sub genres or sub tribes they can connect themselves to and make meaning of it all. So that's sort of like been the approach that I've taken on social media over the last like two years is I found people who were Hotep first and, you know, they were very uh, pan-African nationalist type people. And then from then I, from them, I found the spiritual Twitter and then, numerology, Twitter, astrology, and all these different random, seemingly random subsects of Twitter. And so many of them repeat the same message in their own way to the knowledge of that they understand with their experience. You start to see these underlying patterns. And I, I, I don't know, I'm just going to leave it right there. Um, Emily, do you have a response for that? Um, yeah, I'm just going to touch on a bit the um, competition thing as well. I think we do have spheres, spheres of influence and also responsibility. And of, of course, we can have like multiple of those. But I also think that there should be a hierarchy. And when we allow one, uh, like a smaller identity part of ourselves and the interest in that to overcome the interest of something bigger, like, for example, our fear of well our tribe that is humanity and even greater our tribe that is life itself um then that's where things can kind of go wrong and more specifically on competition i think well obviously you can have intrinsic rewards 
and extrinsic rewards. And I think that competition between groups is a kind of ex extrinsic motivation where you're relying on something else. And in that kind of competitive environment, you're always putting someone else down. You have to beat someone else. And I don't think that that, well, I think that there's, it's better if we rely on self-motivation and motivation for those larger tribes of, you know, like getting humanity, getting life itself to uh, a better state of being. Cool. Hmm. James, do you have a response? Yeah, I, I agree with all of what Emily just said. Um, I was just going to point out one thing that um, ties in with all of this. Um, it, it, I think, um, it, again, it, it comes with when you're looking at tribes and the value or the lack of value of a tribe. Um, one thing to, to keep in mind is that they do provide a framework that's just almost all encompassing for. Um, ethics in a way um, a, a whole lot of uh, self-justification takes place within a tribal framework so when you're looking at inflation um, inflation is if if it's done right it's it's like a heroic act it's like a, it's an emergence you come forth and you you do this inflated thing um, you know, whatever it's again, Kanye West on, uh, on, on stage doing something crazy. Um, it, it's a hero heroic act and it has a lot of potential to achieve some, some goal. Um, but again, when you take away the, the tribes or, uh, when you take away the religious system, then you've got a more kind of schizophrenic understanding of ethics and, heroic behavior uh, in, in individuals. Um, so again, this is, this is again, pros and cons of tribalism. And um, like Emily's, Emily's emphasizing community, I agree with, with that. And I would also agree with um, like what we're doing here on Twitter is kind of looking at it like a, uh, a group process of learning. And in that way you can kind of, um, identify and kind of just relax a little bit and kind of stay a little bit low um, and let other people be heroic and present knowledge. And then you also do it sometimes, but you're not really doing it because you think you're this amazing thing. You're just doing it because you're part of an inter interconnected loose tribe of some kind. Um, so yeah, that was just my two cents there. Okay, that was good. Garrett, do you have a response? Yeah, so um, here's, here's a question that I have. Let's, uh, look, going off what you're saying of uh, not necessarily taking the lead, um, I think we run into the issue that in an absence of power, someone will always attempt to take power, right? So if you don't have uh, necessarily structured system or a structured hierarchy isn't there a concern that the person that decides to attempt to fill that void is generally going to be a person with less a less ethical position right so if i, I think there is there's some obligation that's um 
presented by the nature of things that someone has to take responsibility and kind of accept a degree of this inflate, like a, a measured inflation or a yep. uh, controlled inflation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, since somebody has their hand up, um, is it okay if I respond to that, Victor? Yeah, go for it. Cool. So yeah, you're exactly right. Um, the one thing to keep in mind is that it's got to be situational and it's got to be ecological. The person who actually does surface and um, organizes a hierarchy around themselves, they have to, there has to be a need for them in the society. And there, there is such a need. Um, there definitely, there's, there's needs for, for this kind of, these kind of people to take a stand. That's definitely there. Um, but yeah, it's basically all I'm just adding here is that um, whoever intends to rise up and take power like this should just pay careful attention to what the environment wants. So that's, that's, that's the concern, right? Is the, uh, what's uh, narrow is the, path and straight is the gate that leads to life, right? Like it's a very dangerous um, proposition because on one hand you have going too far in the direction of the individual in question's interests, right? So if you, if you do that, you end up with a dictatorship, you end up with tyranny or fascism, the cult of personality, that kind of thing, right? But if you go too far the other way, you end up with this like collectivistic, uh, like I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that people always know what is best for them. If, if you look at uh, democracies over time tend to get more restrictive for greater numbers of people because group-based decisions are relatively poor. And I think there's scientific literature that I, I'll have to try and find and tag in this video to suggest that the more people you have involved in the decision, the lower the quality of the decision becomes, right? So... That's kind of uh, that's kind of one of the things that I worry about a lot is you have to somehow manage to prevent yourself from becoming that inflated character that's going to take advantage of the responsibility that's been given to them. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you have you have to be you have to take the responsibility of saying I am going to make decisions, I am going to dictate in some sense, and I'm going to be responsible for dictating. Right? Mm-hmm. Like at at some point point someone has to make hard decisions and and accept the consequences of those and i think um a large issue that we have in the world is that people are very very much afraid of taking um responsibility for for serious action or for the consequences of decisions that affect people beyond themselves individualism could be a means of running from this social uh i wouldn't say necessarily social responsibility because that implies that there is some obligation from the group, but I'm saying if a person takes on this role of leading, then they have accepted the obligation of being responsible for the group, rather. I think when you accept a leadership position in an environment that has not too many leaders or people who are making like the same decisions repeatedly, it's, it's definitely the responsibility of that person to have a finger on the pulse of what it is those people require directly. 
if they're not answering the, the problems that need to be solved, if they're not leading in times of crisis, if they're not the first to respond to danger, they're not leaders. That's been the, that's been the social construct for humanity as long as there have been alpha males, like the, the leaders of the pack and everything else. So we have a few responses. We're going to go in order, and this is going to be the order. So it's going to be Ian, and then James, and then Jason. So let's go ahead and round this out, and Ian, take it away. Okay. I just wanted to build on what Garrett was saying in that I think the the interesting thing is that we have the the tyranny of the individual versus the tyranny of the majority. And the tyranny of the majority can actually be just as dangerous because we start marginalizing the small individual, like unique parts of society that we would just kind of wash over. We would just, you know, run over them. And so it's interesting uh, in, in like the individual that we have this capacity for, for both, like we have to build ourselves up because if we don't have a strong sense of self and we're never going to get anything done and we're never going to be indecisive. But then if we, we, we don't do that, if we're not a strong person and we just leave the power for someone else, then it tends to go to whoever wants to use it to their own ends power begets power, right? Like that's kind of the, the, the driving motivational force of power is to get more of it, just like anything else. Um, Jace, or James, your response? Cool. Um, so I would, I would try to direct this um, in a slightly different direction and say um, it's not so much that you would have to be concerned with uh, a fascist leader or somebody who is kind of Machiavellian um, taking power, uh, I would say what's more fundamental than that is that the person or the people making decisions are attuned to the information that they need to be attuned to. So the, uh, this is the idea of skin in the game, basically. So Garrett, you were talking about uh, how, it, how you think that in a democracy as there's more and more people voting, that's actually contributes to a less positive outcome. Um, the, I think that could be mitigated by the degree to which those individual voters have skin in the game for what they are, uh, what they're making decisions about. So skin in the game means that you actually are threatened in some way if the decision turns sour, if it's a bad outcome, you're gonna be harmed in some way. So what this means is you, you have, um, let's say, like a CEO of a company has skin in the game. So they're going to they're gonna pay very, very close attention to the information and the stressors and whatever's relevant going on within the company so that the ship doesn't sink because a person with skin in the game goes down with the ship. That's the whole idea. So, so again, this is... Um, I would say whether it's a single leader or whether it's a, a democracy, um, as long as people are sufficiently attuned to the information that they need to be attuned to, then I think the outcome will be positive. But that's quite tricky. And like you said, Victor, um, if it's a single leader, that person needs to have their finger on the pulse of everyone that they're leading because, um, like you said, they're not going to get very far if, if their decisions aren't positive for everyone. I think that's exactly what we've seen when it comes to certain 
political leaders or even, you know, CEOs and these decision makers of who run massive multinational businesses and stuff. And they make one decision, which to them only represents, you know, a savings cost cut or um, a, a small risk for an innovation or something, let's say. And then it turns out that there needs to be a massive recall for a health concern or, you know, a lot of people died because this innovation exploded in people's faces. And then we chalk it up to capitalism is evil and they're out to destroy the world when really it's really just humans who are, are in those leadership positions with massive amounts of stress who are making decisions without the proper maybe foresight or, um, you know, intuitive connection to their, to their customer base directly or their audience or whatever it may be. Um, Jason, do you have a response for this so far? Yeah. I, so I think that there's, there are some other models that we can look at besides the kind of the leader, having a leader, even if they're very responsive and sensitive to, what's going on, um, these more kind of consensus building models. So for example, like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Miles Horton. He started the Highlander Folk School, um, which was really involved with labor movements of the thirties, the civil rights movement of the fifties and sixties. Um, basically it was a model where, um, it was basically bringing people together to have a conversation, um, and to, to just kind of feel themselves out and to, to basically, through the process of consultation, the, the real issues that people are concerned about kind of come out, as well as the, you know, what to do about those issues. Um, There's a very effective model. Um, another, another model is like Paulo Freire. Um, he, he wrote like, uh, I always get this word wrong, pedagogy uh, of the oppressed, um, kind of building critical consciousness. So this is more of like a Marxian framework and so, but you know, don't throw the baby out with the bath, bath water here. Um, uh, basically, a, a project of, of raising the capability of the people within the group to to kind of have these consensus-based decision making. And another model is so I used to be a member of the Baha'i Faith, and the way that they make decisions. So there's like in every community, there's like a there's like an assembly, um, and the way they make decisions is there's like nine members and. They each throw out ideas, and one of the core concepts is that when you put out an idea, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to the group. Um, and usually, you try and come to a consensus through through dialogue. Um, if you don't, then it's then it's a vote. Um, but then, when they present it to the community, so first of all, they're elected. Um, but when they present it to the community, it doesn't actually get attributed to any individual. It gets attributed to the decision of the group, and this group is elected every single year. Um, and so, I guess. You know, we talk about the problems of democracy, of like people think democracy is like you go vote for, you know, a congressman or something. But there's other models of democracy that are more kind of the process of consensus building among many different stakeholders. And so while you still need people to coordinate that process, um, since they could be considered the leaders. I, I think that this idea of one leader, I, I don't know if that, you know, I guess there's other models that we've seen in the 20th century and 21st century that work quite well. Uh, maybe they haven't worked on scale, so right. they have yeah. to be tested on scale, but yeah. something to think about. Yeah. Garrett, you got a response to that? Right. So the, the first thing I wanted to see, so uh, pedagogy of the oppressed, you're saying basically that um, the educational institutions are, oppressing people because they're not giving them the tools to 
accurately make decisions? Is that the, is that what I'm taking from that? Well, it's more like society is not giving them the tools to take, take control of their own sovereignty. And so the educational process should be about, um, you know, enabling, like giving people kind of a critical consciousness of their situation, their situated situatedness within their society, um, cultivating a reflexivity, which is basically becoming reflective about your place in the hierarchy and how, how, how much do you deserve to be in that place? Um, and how is that affecting others? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the basics of it. Right. So, um, so the, my first thought with that, I would say that, um, I, I rather than necessarily, uh, in, um, suggesting that people analyze their positions as much, I would say it'd be better. It would seem like it would be better that we would teach people just basic critical thinking. Um, like here's, here's logical fallacies. Like here's, here's how to debate, right? Here's how to uh, think about things from multiple different angles. And I think then given the right tools, they would make better decisions in the long run. But if you, I think if, and I mean, this is, this would be, uh, you know, one of my complaints that I love against Marxism as a whole is the overemphasis on status and hierarchical position. I, I think that the, and I may be, I may be taking this wrong, but the, the emphasis there seems like that it is focused more on like, okay, well, take a look at where you're at. Uh, let's, let's look at your position and that kind of thing. Whereas I think you'd be better off teaching people simple critical thinking. And if that is the issue, then they'll come to that realization anyway, because you've been giving them the foundation to think with rather than this is what you should be thinking about. So I guess my response would be why not both? So, I mean, the thing that annoys me about this kind of rationalist approach is that again, it's not, it's not, it's not taking into account the observer. Like who is the person who is rationalizing? Um, they're coming from a perspective and they can't, it's my opinion that to some degree they cannot escape that. There is no pure rationality. Um, so I agree with you, Garrett, that, you know, teaching people about cognitive biases, you know, that, that is incredibly important, but I don't see why you need to do that in lieu of reflecting on your, yourself, your place in the network um, how, you know, just in general being reflective, about, like, I, I don't see why we, we would have to throw that out. Well, the, the issue that I see is that there, whereas, uh, like pure, if you're trying to teach, obviously there's no pure logic, but if you're trying to see, teach something that approaches clear rationality, pure logic, then I think it'd be much easier to do that in a way that's bias free. Whereas if you're, the closer you get to, the closer you get to the social applications of things, the greater the likelihood of bias entering the discussion is. And if you're, if we're referencing pedagogy, then there's the issue that the people teaching are biased and they have an investment in this because I mean, uh, one, you know, I obviously with everything that I'm doing, uh, educationally, uh, master self and all of that, there is, an underlying idea that I'm trying to get out with that. So, and I try to do that with as clear of logic as possible, 
So that would be the thing that I would worry about is that even in what I, I try to be fairly unbiased, there is an underlying message that I'm pushing. And I imagine that would be the same for anyone, right? Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I, and so I, I think James, this is kind of related to one of your threads as well. Um, this idea that we develop this message within ourselves and then we work to kind of mimetically, mimetically engineer it to other people. And I, and I kind of reject that model. I, I think that, you know, this has to be an intersubjective process and has to be an emergent, you know, the, the kind of consensus that we get has to be an emergent phenomenon, you know, with each person, you know, taking in the information from the others and from their environment, reprocessing it, putting something back out there like you described, but then getting the feedback and continually evolving this message in feedback with others in their environment. I, I mean, I agree. There's, de there's definitely, uh, I wouldn't say negotiation because uh, perspective, but there's definitely a, uh, a give and take to the entirety of it. Um, although I think that that implies more that it's like a discovered concept that's being uh, like that teams are working together to come towards something rather than, well, I guess that would really, that's that's pretty context dependent. So I think we could leave. Yeah, it, it boils down to perspective. Really, it's idiosyncrasy. So like, one one person is going to have a view where it's like only it's their ideas, and they're not going to take into account the fact that their decision making processes are influenced by every communication that they've ever had in their entire life. So they're really just a culmination of everyone else's interactions with them, you know, rather than than that being the opposite process. So I mean. It boils down to perspective, really. We could chalk it up to that much, I think, on this one. But that was, a, that was an interesting parlay there. Well, just, just one more small thing. I think it's also different between – so you talk about getting rid of cognitive biases, but I think they're different between explicit biases and implicit biases. And so I think if, you, if, you don't, if you're not reflexive, then you're going to have implicit biases that you don't acknowledge by definition. Um, and that's actually, I think, more harmful in the long run. Whereas if you go through that process – you get feedback from the environment, those biases become explicit because other people are going to point them out to you. And when anything, same with, within meditation, if you want to work with something, make it better, it has to be made explicit. No, I, uh, I yeah. definitely agree. With, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think uh, one of the solutions, and this is kind of, kind of the, the angle that I've taken with Master Self, is that rather than discussing uh, issues specifically, uh, like saying, okay, well, this is the thing that we're going to tackle. Uh, I've taken it uh, and kind of flipped it and said, well, before you even get to any of that stuff, before you start dealing with the rest of the world, th those kind of larger issues or issues that concern other people, you should check yourself first. You should deal with yourself, figure out your biases, know who you are, know what your motivations are, because a lot of people don't know those things. And then the, uh, the one other thing I forgot to say, um, because of my rant, was the, uh, I like that that team decision model. And I like the idea that people don't own ideas because basically once an idea leaves your mouth, you, you have no claim to it. You know, we can make claims of property rights, whereas, okay, well I've developed a process, right. Or I've, uh, I've created something tangible, but there's, there's no argument that anyone, I, I think there's no good argument that anyone should own ideas because, your information wants to be free. And once you start restricting that, then you're actively working against every other person that could benefit from that information.
Yeah. Totally, I agree. Yeah. Um, should we should we move on to the next topic after that wrap up? I think that's a good. Yeah, I think so. A good spot. Okay, so let me pull it up real quick. So I guess I guess it looks like we're probably going to be doing uh, just two large topics then this evening or this day in uh, down under. I think that's ideal. <laughs> uh, for those who are paying attention, obviously Chance Lunsford had some technical difficulties, so he did a wrestling tag move, and then we had Ryan jump in to replace him. That way, all of our squares stay symmetrical. So. Ryan, go ahead and introduce yourself right quick. Hey, I'm Ryan, and uh, um, I go by Path to Manliness here. If you guys don't know me, um, I think most of you guys know me by now. Uh, but, you know, kind of like what Garrett was saying there, I do a little bit of uh, – he's got his Master That Self program. I have a similar mindset where instead of trying to change the world, you change yourself. Focus on masculinity, self-improvement. I do have a book out. It's got this really cool little eagle wing thing and some Spartan stuff and a shield, so it's very manly. So you can assure that it's well worth the purchase. Um, that's on Amazon, and you can search Manliness or Reclaim Your Manhood. And I also have a website, same name. Um, this chat's going really long, so let's get to the next topic. Beautiful. So on the topic of books and words and content and such, there are correlations that were brought to our attention by Miss Emily Painter, and I'm going to bring those onto the screen now. So let's go ahead and pull those up. Boom. I think I got it. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about half and then we'll talk about the other half. Um, so this is obviously a word map. Um, Emily, if you can give us some context to what it is we're looking at here, that'd be perfect. Yep. All right, so this was a kind of study done uh, on Facebook, I believe it was. And basically they analyzed people's, well, a lot of different personality traits with different people and then um, looked at all of their posts and their messages to see the frequency of different words that popped up. So this one obviously is looking at levels of neuroticism um, and generally things that come up in people's words. And I think firstly, these maps are kind of really entertaining because it really kind of pushes across um, the, the real differences in people's personalities, but also just showing the new kind of uh, avenues that I guess social media opens up for really broad um, research um, and I guess relating kind of back to complexity and emergence when you look at you know really big systems and analyze what's going on you can come up with all these correlations and get you know some insights on different things so yeah so they basically have assembled data correlating people's neuroticism based on the language that they're using on their social media platforms. Yep. Interesting. So I have, I've written a lot of content and I mean, um, on my email newsletter, it's like sort of defunct, but it's being revived. I'll have an email out today, probably. I don't know. We'll see. Um, where we tend to be the victims of our own inner mantras. And I use mantra as like a loose term for just any form of language that you're repeating to yourself on a consistent basis. I mean, that could be anything from 
you know, waking up and being like, oh, I hate, I hate my life or waking up and saying, you know, I'm going to get it today. And you, you, you jump up and you, you start doing pushups or some shit. Like it, it, a lot of our behaviors are programmed via the language that we use to ourselves to either describe ourselves, our activities or the way that we feel about said activities. Um, so I can totally see the correlation between the language that you would use on social media and how that would reflect, you know, your, your either your mental health or even, I mean, that's kind of a bold claim, claim um, statement to claim, obviously, because it's like anybody can be anybody on the internet. You can just use a bunch of these words and not think one way or the other about it. Um, so that's, that's a pretty interesting concept though. And I think that it, yeah. So Gary, how, how about you? The, the first thing that I notice I, I have to assume that there's bias here or the sample size was probably fairly small only because the, uh, well, now there's a couple things I noticed. First off, the, the fact that Celtics is one of the biggest words on the bottom indicates that either they were in a very specific area or the sample size was small, right? Um, Beyond that, the, like the obvious religious overtones conveys to me that there's probably some kind of uh, agenda behind the people doing this or they pick people specifically from um, a religious community. The, interesting also that the, uh, there's a bunch of emoji faces up top and there's not any emoji faces that I can see on the bottom. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 would, uh, I think this is not necessarily commenting on the legitimacy of it it's more of just an interesting observation that there may be uh, bias underlying this. That is true, and that's something I noticed myself with the emoji point. Um, Ryan, how about you? Yeah, um, you, you brought up an interesting point I was going to expand on a little bit. You mentioned how um, it, it clearly shows a, a mental pathway that people are going on. If, if you're talking about um, depression and horrible and you're fed up and and all this shit uh saying it once in a while we all do it in fact i use a lot of those words but when you have a pattern of it it's it this should set off a red flag for you when you see somebody you know doing this and this, this is a sign of somebody that's going through some some sort of strife or a problem and you know whenever there's a school shooting or something people like to legislate their way out of it but nothing gets done this is this is what needs to get done this is where you start looking at people that are exhibiting signs that they're clearly not necessarily unhinged but possibly they just maybe they just need someone to say hey are you okay do you need help with something is there something bothering you um, when you start seeing people saying words like stupid and hate over and over again it like like you said it builds into a mindset of they start talking themselves into this negative sort of um negative feedback loop and then conversely, on the bottom side, you can see people that are uh, clearly exhibiting more healthy um, activities, going to the beach, watching the Lakers, playing basketball. These, these are people that have meaning in their life. Even if it's just watching the Lakers, they're focusing on more positive things. So, um, I mean, it seems this, this, this bottom one looks like a mega church. Yeah, let's, um, yeah. let's check out the second Baptist, image. And see, let's see if there's any differences we can notice. So this is the second one here. Um, oh my god! 
So this one's for extroversion. So how willing somebody is to, you know, <laughs> reach out further than themselves in order to communicate with someone. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It looks a little biased, but <laughs> I'm trying to do some research right now to see exactly who is performing. So this is the the Penn Positive Psychology Center uh, from Philadelphia, uh, and then the Stony Brook Human Language Analysis Lab in Stony Brook, New York. So. Uh, y'all continue. I'm going to, I'm going to try and get some background here uh, while you discuss this. So Garrett, I have a small suspicion that no one else can see you except me. And I'm not sure if your video will be coming through on the final product, but your godly um, voice is being transmitted. So I'm okay with uh, that. Um, so, okay. So the first thing I see it is Penn, Stony Brook University and the Templeton Religious Trust. So that, that's our first oh. key here. There is obvious bias. Uh, yeah, I, I would say I would take I think the the principle here is valid. I think there is definitely 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 a correlation between the language that you use and the way that you feel because you in you know, we think in words, we communicate with words, we access mental concepts verbally, right? So if you're continually using negative language, that obviously obviously correlates with a negative mindset and vice versa. But grain of salt with all of this because there's clearly a bias here. I, I love all of these math symbols, symbols on the bottom. So like DX. So if you do calculus, you're clearly an introvert. <laughs> there's also well, let's take a take a look at the last one and see if what we can scrape up here. Agreeableness oh, this time. Wow. I see a lot of fun. Huh. Wow. I see a lot of uh, Bible names in the beginning. Gary, didn't you say that you were on like the two percentile on, on, on agreeableness? Yeah, I am. The, well, I also, I also generally, uh, not as much here, but I do swear profusely. So, uh, <laughs> so you say piss buckers, dumbass a lot. <laughs> Reading that bottom cloud looks a lot like the Cartman episode when he got Tourette's and he was just like, oh, right. pussy ass, ah, da, da, and he just like, yeah, that's basically yeah. all I see there. It's like it's, all swear words. Well, that's the, see, that's unless unless you have one group of people that is only saying like profanity, and the other group of people is literally only talking about going to church, then they it's pretty obvious that these are cherry picked, right? There's almost nothing but church stuff, and that's how. That's what I'm saying. Wow, what a, like what kind of awful scholarship is this? You know, it's like, hey, also, hey Templeton gave us a hundred grand. You guys got to do them like a courtesy project. Something I just want to bring to everyone's attention: How often are you using underscores to separate two keywords while you're using your social media? Because that's more of a it's more of a like index engine thing where you want to be very precise on the phrase that you're using rather than you know, merry merry underscore Christmas, everyone on Twitter. It's not something that's like a popular tweet you'd see. So I, I think they're indicating a space. I don't see anything with a regular space in it. So it's probably just indicating a space in their data. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so you know that they're not separated, but when I, uh, someone mentioned before that, you know, you, you think in words, but I think that there's something that comes before words, right? Words are a kind of translation of everything that's going on and out brain it's like an abstraction into one thing that we can describe something with and so when you use the words that you use shape your reality because they have different meanings behind them that tap into 
your emotions and the sub level of consciousness that goes before your um, rational like language part of your brain. So it is, even though obviously this research is biased, again, the, the language you use shapes your reality. And if you're using um, negative language, that's exactly how your world is going to look because it taps into that subconscious kind of part of you. I, can, I, I I'm going to jump in real quick on something. So there's a, there's a movie called waking life and it's um, this amalgamation of different like scenes and stuff. And it's kind of like a dream state the entire time it's rotoscoped animation. It's really cool. Um, there's a conversation that happens in it between the main character and another and a woman. And she's explaining that humans had to associate actions and emotions with sounds that could describe what was happening in a shorter amount of time than it was to just react. But the problem is that once we became, we became so efficient at doing that, we started using the words to not only describe the reality, but define it. So then once we started to define everything and categorize everything, the, the sort of, she, she sort of went on to say like the, the life of the world sort of dies with words because words are inert. They're just sound. They're just uh, a collection of different, grunt noises that I'm it's a agreed upon throat noises as Terrence McKenna put it it's it's simply that so um I'm gonna drop it at that Jason do you have a response so far yeah just a so <clears throat> you know there's some people who, who kind of have this approach to oh we, we just need to use positive words self-talk you know cultivate a positive mindset and, and, I, and I'm with that to some degree but at the same time I feel like it's kind of like a top-down solution to your mind state where like, you know, I'm not going to use negative words. I'm going to use positive words. And to some degree, I think that works, but I, at least in my experience, like when I try to impose a positive mind state, like if I wake up and I'm just in a bad mood, and if I try to impose a positive mind state on myself, um, it usually doesn't end up well. Um, there's like some kind of repression going on. And, and so I think there's like a, this fine line between, you know, not allowing yourself to sink into these kind of this cloud space of negative thoughts. But at the same time, like if you're feeling bad one day, you know, allow yourself to feel bad for a while and don't, don't be like, yay, you know, Christ, you know, wow. Um, you know, like sometimes just give yourself a break and let yourself just do in your, in your funk a little bit. And if you let yourself do that, I think more often than not, you'll get out of it. Um, instead of just kind of, there's a little bit of a tangent, but, just a thought. No, I agree. I think that's you got to be able to process the the emotions that come across. I mean, like it's it's just like meditation or anything else. You got to let it come through, identify that it's there, you know, recognize that it's there, and then let it go. So, and that's totally important to the process. Um, Garrett, do you have a, a continuation of that thought? Yeah. So I think um, I think before before I respond to that specifically, uh, it seems I I would guess that the word usage is more than likely an effect rather than a cause. Um, unless I, I, I don't know I think that if the, the idea of like changing the words you use ultimately ends up being about as useful as affirmations would be like, maybe if you're the type of person that only uses negative self-talk and then you, somebody says, okay, well try just saying I don't suck every single day, then that probably would help you. But I think, um, as, as far as I understand thought, there's the, what, what you were talking about, Emily, there's the, the base level, which is like concept 
right? This is abstract thought. And we've kind of gotten to this point where we, we attach me, you know, we attach words onto concepts. And so you have it, it basically like a, like a 3d spider web, right? Where every dot would be a concept. And then we have a word attached to that and a feeling attached to that. And it, like a smell, your sense information gets attached to that concept. And we can use the words to access that lower level of pure semantic meaning, right? The, the experiential level of, of thought or mind. Right. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I think, um, I think one of the things that would probably benefit people overall is a greater appreciation for semantic, semantic can be precision. Mm -hmm. So if you become more precise in your word use, I mean, look in, um, in Buddhism, you have one of the eight noble, uh, truths is right speech, right? I believe. Um, so, there's, there's obviously that if, if you have eight rules for the most important things that you can do, and one of them is right speech, like the idea that precision in verbiage is that important, then that's, that's indicative that there's something to that, right? Uh, especially, and I know everyone, uh, not everyone thinks in words. I obviously think in words. Um, there's, there's something, if, if that's the way that you think, then you should aim to be more precise with that, right? That's gonna that's gonna give you kind of a an increased ability to think clearly. So I guess that would be if you if you thought in pictures, being incredibly specific about the pictures that you're using or the detail of that would allow you to be more specific and more clear in your thought. Okay, so I have a I have a pretty I, I can take this idea and ramp it up to like fifteen. So I'm gonna let Jason jump in with his thought, and then I'm going to respond to both of you. Yeah, well, I'm just curious how. I'm just kind of thinking out loud how this idea of precise or concise, precise thought would relate to this notion of kind of positive self-talk, right? So in one sense, you know, you might be feeling like crap all the time and it would be very precise to continue to tell yourself, you know, I'm a piece of shit, I'm a piece of shit. And perhaps that's very precise. Well, or, or, or maybe not. Right. So the, that's kind of like a course resolution analysis of your situation. Um, in, in meditation circles, they talk about trying to observe your reality with as much sensory clarity as possible. And what you find is like, okay, you go outside and it's cloudy and your self-talk might be like, oh, why is it always cloudy? Like I'm depressed, this is horrible. But if you look at it with, with finer sensory clarity, you actually realize, oh, well, there's sensations on my skin and you know, there's thought bubbles coming up, but it's actually, is it really that bad, right? Like, like, like some of these kind of, narratives of like say negative self-talk they start to see you know you start to see them as kind of like these coarse descriptions of reality um and so perhaps the solution is not like oh i'm gonna you know i'm gonna you know chump myself up and i'm gonna be like wow you know way to go jesus christ you know what wonderful you know it's, it's more about just finer grain understanding of your spiritual reality and realizing that it's actually not that bad if you look at it on a very detailed sensory level. It's just, it's just, it's, it's more neutral. And with that, you can, you know, you can take that and, you know, take it wherever you want. Okay. So to, so to tie these all together so far, before I pass it back to Garrett, we have concept. So it's concept, which we needed to describe these words for certain sounds, sensations, what have you, whatever. Next we had content. So that's the, 
filling our brains of, you know, what is the day, how we, how we view it and everything else. I think what's more important than both of those is context. So now to me, it doesn't matter what the content content is. It matters more what the context is in the greater realm of things. And to attribute this self-talk with, you know, positive affirmations or context or whatever, you know, sort of the theme we're talking about right now is this concept who, uh, which I think was popularized by uh, Tony Robbins, if I'm not mistaken, and it's called neuroassociative conditioning. And it's basically exactly what Jason had just explained. So it's this idea that you don't allow yourself to frame the situations that happen to you or the experiences that you have in such a way where it's negative to your growth or it's negative to your expansion or it's negative to your connectedness. And you sort of take something like I walk outside and it's raining, you know, uh, for somebody who lives in Southern California, rain is really rare. So typically you hear a lot of complaints because people are used to the sun. People are used to being out in nice weather and stuff. And very, it's all about framing in that you can go outside and be like, oh man, my shoes are going to get wet. I'm going to get all this fucking mud on me. I'm going to be dirty when I come home. You know, my car is going to smell weird, da, 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 whatever it may be. And instead view it as, you know, Oh wow! I get to I get to hear the pitter patter of the rain against the, uh, the the pavement, or you know, wow the the feeling of fresh dew in the morning on my skin is really refreshing, um, and you know you can take any sort of experience, and it, in my view, I don't think that people have like I don't think people attract their realities in ways like oh people attract poverty or attract violence or attract anything else. Um, what I think happens is we are the people that we are here to be right now in this life have certain experiences that will either propel us to growth or keep us stagnant. And it's up to us to frame those experiences in such a way where they do lend to our growth rather than continually bringing ourselves detriment. So I'm going to end my rant there. Garrett, you have a response and then we'll pass it off to Emily. Right. So um, I think, I think what Jason was, talking about we're actually talking about the same thing uh from from different angles so when you're talking about like the the low resolution the the course image right um i know i i am much more uh think thought oriented and verbally oriented so if you're talking about this kind of precision of feeling then that would be i think the the complementary equivalent of this for a person that is not thought oriented right so more intuitive. Yeah, yeah. So, as far as um, as far as that goes, I think it just uh, I mean that's really just level of awareness. The more aware you are, the more in focus everything is. The higher resolution, the more uh, fine grained things are. And then into what Victor was saying, I think yeah, that really that really sums it up. That it's it's context, it's framing, it's attitude, right? It's if. Um, you can have all the negative self-talk. Like, honestly, I, I'm not super, uh, super pro positive self-talk. I like to be like brutal with myself, but it's the framing of that, that I can be brutal with myself and use that as a positive motivator, right? Like the framing that I'm going to be harder on me than anyone else will be on me because it's going to make me stronger. Right. So I think that that really is the best way to sum up this entire thing is context framing attitude like how are you going to respond to this whether or not you're framing it like you could have 
you could be a really negative person and frame everything positively and then you're just deluding yourself, right? Um, so that doesn't, that doesn't matter how positive self-talk is if it's denial or it's, it's inaccurate and you could be super negative. So like, I, right. So I, I think that's a, that was a really good way to sum it up. That's a, that's excellent. Emily, do you have a, anything to add? Yeah, I was just going to add on and I agree with the sentiment that positive self-talk is, well, it's kind of bloody useless, at least for me. But I also think that we place too much emphasis, although words do have power because they tap into those underlying semantics, the underlying semantics themselves are the things that have ultimate power. And when you look at something like meditation and the function of that, the, the best thing about meditation is trying to remove yourself from that, you know, that outer kind of cortex of your brain that's always logical, always trying to ascribe um, prescribe like labels to things and you start to see the world as it really is without language um, for me at least that's what I like about it is kind of turning that logical self off seeing things with without having to quantify anything and in that sense that that's like the clearest picture you can get and this comes back to you know fostering kind of a sense of awe and wonderment at the world and when you're looking at something in awe and you're looking at something with wonder you have no words for it right um because that's you're seeing it as it really is you're not trying to reduce it into something that your brain can kind of better comprehend and communicate with like there's different functions for different things that's a very distinctive point i think it was asha who said something along the lines of like children are the purest forms of wonder because they'll just ask questions just to ask them. Um, if you ignore a child and they're pestering, you know, inquisition, they will find a new question. They don't care to hear your answer. They just want to, they just want to verbalize their wonder about what it is they're observing. And I think that there's a difference between being childlike and childish. So this is sort of like two distinctions that a lot of people sort of miss up where, you know, they think that being childlike is having, a rash attitude or, you know, um, being stubborn or, you know, having a mood until you get fed or something like something weird. Whereas being childlike is more about that sensory wonder and, um, just opening yourself up to the possibility that the experience you expect to have may not actually turn out the way that you expect. If, if you completely remove yourself from those expectations and take yourself out of that logical mind frame and just, be in the moment and sense the energy and sort of know when to react in a certain way. Cause you'll, I, I think there are a lot of um, references made in like anime and different pop culture and video games, even where it's, it's not about the level of skill you have in any sort of area. It's about the application of that skill. So the day, the day-to-day -day practice of maybe negative self-talk works for you and you find that that's a great motivator. Um, but if it ever comes to a point where even your negative talk is negative for you, or you're, you're, you're sort of wondering why it is you're so hard on yourself. Like you're thinking about how you're thinking, you're starting to like get a mega meta with it. I think that that's when it needs to be retracted a little bit and you just need to simplify and more just my, I mean, the thing I go to is breathing. So it's just like, it comes down to the breath for me. So it's 
before awareness, before reaction, before creation, before anything else, I'm going to need to breathe in order to make sure that my brain is oxygenated sufficiently in order to compose a coherent response, you know? So that's sort of the approach that I take. Um, I think we should just go into like free form discussion at this point. So if anyone has anything to add or maybe a tangent they wanted to, to talk about or some sort of connecting idea. And you got something? Um, well, I'm just thinking about words and how they relate to ideas and how, I don't know, it's, it's something I've been kind of learning a little bit more on Twitter is we, there's, there's certain ways that convey ideas better through words, but then there's also like a meta word where you, like a meme essentially, where it's conveying almost an emotion through a visual stimulus and how we're as a society kind of like evolving towards that because now we have the means to do it. We have the means to, to convey not just an idea through a word, but also like an emotion and an idea at the same time. And I don't know how that relates to everything, but it's just interesting to me how like as we evolve as a species and as a people, that we become more complex because we want to convey what we feel as like more strongly. And so if we have the means to do it, we will do that. Um, but yeah. Hmm. This is where I think um, like brain computer interface technology can really be awesome for language because if you're able to kind of decode and obviously this isn't going to happen for a very long time but if you're able to decode the you know all the neuronal firings in your brain and understand what that means and be able to replicate those in another person's brain so they can understand exactly what you're conveying so you wouldn't have to use words you you'd be using what comes before those words and all the 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 emotions that come across with that all the meanings related to it and then the other person would be able to like, hopefully truly understand what you're getting at. Um, that's a pretty cool thing to look forward to. So, yeah, I, th I it's really, we're kind of at a crossroads here because it's we're at that point where we are trying to develop the tools to, you know, like memetic engineering and stuff. We're trying to develop the tools in order to tap people's emotions quicker for a sort of, mental response. And honestly, this is something that marketing has been working on for 70 some years now is the, you know, color psychology, typography, uh, symmetry, all of these things have an effect on the site of the subconscious. I mean, we, it's sort of, I don't want to break this conversation into something crazy, but it's, we're sort of, we're overlooking the, the simplest forms of shapes that invoke emotions and those are the letters themselves. I mean, they're based on semicircles and straight lines and triangles and, you know, all of these shapes that we would typically overlook, but they're actual just ge geometrical shapes. Um, so there's, there's this, I mean, there's so many different directions we can go with this. I think we can talk for the next like forever until words don't exist anymore. Um, but <laughs> so I think we are, nearly about to wrap up, but let's, let's see if we got some final thoughts here. Um, Jason, why don't you take it away? It's interesting because, so for example, there's a kind of classical example of like 
you know, often we go through our lives and we're like, oh, that's a tree. And because we've kind of mentally categorized it into uh, kind of this abstract concept, we don't actually notice the tree, right? Um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have had this experience where like, oh, I was looking at the tree outside of my back window and I felt like I had truly seen that tree for the first time in my life. I was like looking at the texture, the detail, really taking it in. And all the times before that, I was like, oh, that's a tree. So like I immediately kind of sh shut it off from kind of this more embodied experience of it. At the same time, there's a limit to being able to fully kind of embody all of the, you know, sensory, emotion, colors. Like it's, it's almost like cognitive overload. So there is a, a role for these kind of concepts, uh, which language helps facilitate in order just to be functional. And so it'll be interesting, Emily, what you're talking about when we get to these kind of more advanced technologies of directly uh, kind of communicating our thoughts and emotions. Um, you know, we'll also have to be careful not to go too far in the other direction of like, you become so, everything becomes so imminent um, that there's no longer any way to organize all of these kind of mental and emo mental emotional moments into something that's functional in society, right? Um, so it's an interesting kind of dynamic there um, between the two. And I, I recommend going, you know, practicing imminence, practicing like you said, uh, um, uh, subtle, uh, Victor, of like, if you're getting too meta and it's taking you out of a situation, bring it back to the body, to the breath, whatever. But concepts are so useful as well. And so we shouldn't really like shun either, you know, either mode. Oh, yeah. I mean, totally. You're going to need concepts. I mean, without concepts, we wouldn't, we'd wake up and we'd have to relearn how to live our lives on a daily basis. I mean, compounding information is going to happen, but it comes down to, a sort of using the breath as a defragmentation rather than a continual running process because then you end up enlightened and who really wants to be enlightened. So, um, Gareth, what, what do you got? Yeah, I think, uh, I, think, uh, I think it's not as much that – I, I think if you're the type of person that stays in the realm of concepts all the time, you need to be able to access the embodied, like, imminent experience, right? And that would be the thing that you would, um, that would be the thing that would benefit you most to learn how to do, because then you're going to get perspective on your current state, right? And if you're the type of person that is much more in the moment, and like, if you're the type of person that's really smelling the roses every single time you walk by, that's going to cause you problems too, right? You need to have this, I think it's, it's, um, what is, uh, what does he call it? Joseph Campbell calls it something like, um, the hero, the hero at the end of the hero's journey is the master of two worlds. And I think that kind of idea of both being able to be in the immediate experience, but also being removed and being analytical are, you need to be able to do both of them and you need to not be constrained or stuck in one mode. Yeah, I agree. I think that that ties into a lot of the structures that govern this entire reality is this idea of polarity and, you know, paradoxes and everything else where it's like, well, the answer is sort of both always and never. Um, yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think that may wrap it up for us here. And anyone else got any final thoughts or anything to close out the conversation on? Last ideas going once, going twice. Okay, so I guess this is this is the end of the Ionosphere episode three, everyone. Thank you for joining. I'm Victor Valentine. 
that's Ian, that's Jason, that's Emilius, James, Garrett, and Ryan. And don't forget the illustrious Chancellor's vote at the beginning of the show. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. Take control of your life. No fab. <laughs> no fab. I'm going to end the recording now. <laughs> um, how do I do this? Nice. That's not it. <laughs> that was